Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast deals with discrimination, homophobia, suicide, and crimes against men and children. Please listen at your own discretion. If you are affected by any of the themes featured in this episode, please contact your local support charity. I think I think the night before he retired to his flat, and I think he he drank rather a lot. And he drew out a police revolver. Uh, poor John, um, must have gone through a terrible night. Was found the next day dead. Uh, they found his body on the floor um, by the bed in the in the bedroom. And the bedroom door was locked from the inside. I mean, the fact is they're all there, but. He asked the question, could more have been done? I say yes. Catching Worms, a Hong Kong true crime podcast. For Detective Ian Grant, the morning of the 15th of January, 1980, was just the start to another week. I had no idea, not that I'm trying to defend my position, I had no idea that SIU were going to interview John. It was just another Monday morning to me. I had gone into the office about seven o'clock because as, as the officer in charge of the CID, you had to go through all the reports that had happened overnight and just check everything was in order before what they called morning prayers where you, everything would be discussed with the higher-ups. And that week before and that week, I was actually in Cowling District Court every day. So I'd gone in in the morning, and actually as I was leaving, I had the driver to take me to North Cowling Court. The armory PC came up to me and said, sir, sir, and he had the armory register, and he said, Mr. McLennan has drawn a revolver. And I looked at that and I saw the signature, John's signature, because I was familiar with it. And I said, oh, yeah, that's Mr. McLennan's signature. And I then 
got in the car and my mind was focused on the court case. And I just went to court. I never thought any more, any more about it. And then I recall coming back in the car after court in the afternoon. I said to myself, well, I wonder what John was up to. Because I mentioned earlier, he wasn't the most proactive. And I said, bloody hell, that's good news. He's obviously had something to do. And he's gone and got a revolver. I'm sort of, I'm just sort of idly in the car getting driven back to the station. At this point, Detective Ian Grant had no idea what had taken place the day before. He was unaware that John had been summoned to Jack Topman's office, his division superintendent. He had no idea that the SIU had planned to arrest his friend and subordinate for five counts of gross indecency, for homosexual acts with prostitutes and young boys. And no knowledge that John McLennan had been informed that... His entire life was about to collapse. Detective Nori McKillop was working in the SIU at the time, investigating John. But he also knew John. John was his friend. And he could imagine how John must have been feeling. Uh, poor John. Um, must have gone through a terrible night, thinking that he was going to be arrested by his peers. Author Nigel Collett, whilst researching the case, has pieced together John's actions that night. Initially he was quite shocked. He, he went for a quick drink in the, in the mess. He um, then went back to his office. He tried to tidy things up. Uh, he did his duty to try and finish off his reports, all the things he'd been working on, and he left them on a big, in a big stack. He took them back to his room overnight with his typewriter and he, he worked on them there and he finished them off. John then, from his quarter when he'd finished his work, asked uh, the police station to give him an early call. And it was all logged down. He received a wake-up call at 5.30am. According to records, the sun rose that day at four minutes past seven, and it rises pretty quickly in Hong Kong. So when John woke up that morning, he would have woken up in darkness. And the next morning they gave him an early call and he walked from his quarter to the police station and he drew out a police revolver from the armory in the police station. He went from his Wilmington quarter and walked to the station, which is about a 10, 15 minute walk up and down the flyover, and drew a revolver. Walking the dark streets, those 10 to 15 minutes to the station, you wonder what John was thinking. Was he making up his cover story, thinking about what he would tell people he was about to do, rather than thinking about what he's actually planning to do? Claiming to the sergeant on duty, uh, and who, who then told the armourer, the, the armourer constable, that he was going on a raid and he needed a, a weapon. But really, he didn't need an excuse at all. He was supposed to have his own gun. You, you know that he drew a revolver that morning, right? Well, when you were in CID, you had your own personal issue revolver. So we all had a revolver. Inspectors carried the revolver. You meant to carry it all the time. It was a pain. You know, you, you were out drinking maybe, and you were frightened you'd lose the bloody thing. So it wasn't common. But John didn't have a personal issue revolver. And we had an inspection coming up and I said to John, somebody told me he didn't have one. I said, you need to get one just in case during the inspection you're asked, they, they say, let me check your revolver. 
And he said, Rick, he said, I'd, I'd go down, downtown, I could get a few drinks from me, I could lose that gun, there'd be more shit than not having it, you know? And I said, okay, no problem, we'll not pursue it, just don't bother getting one. So he didn't have a gun. Now, this wasn't unusual, and most police officers um, in his area, in, in uh, investigations, uh, would keep a, a revolver at that stage in, in their quarters. Uh, it was um, a normal process, and he had always refused to do that. So there was nothing to stop him drawing out the revolver, and he drew out the revolver and some rounds, and then he left, and he went back to his quarter. So having a gun, drawing out a gun, wasn't unusual. Except it was for John. As we heard at the beginning of the episode, the fact that he drew out a gun came as a surprise to Ian Grant, who was John's boss. On top of that, John wasn't technically working. He'd worked till 8pm the night of the 14th, so therefore wasn't due to start his next shift until 8pm the following evening. So why, some 14 hours before his next shift, had John gone to the station to withdraw a weapon? To withdraw weapon 4894. A revolver with six rounds of ammunition. John then walked the 10 to 15 minute stroll as dawn was breaking back to his quarters. What was he thinking? What did he need the gun for? What happened next? Um, And at that point, um, it would appear, and this is all now um, where controversy um, will come in. Um, where controversy will come in. Where controversy will come in. And this is the point where we start to look at different scenarios, different explanations and rationale, motives, scandal and conspiracy that made this a media frenzy. What the police did right and where they slipped up. But for now, we will stick with the story most widely believed. This is what John did next. He locked himself inside his police quarter um, and locked the outer doors and bolted them. So there were two locks, and an upper and a lower bolt, so the door was really heavily bolted. He wrote a suicide note on his desk, left it on his desk with an envelope with another note on it, which was also asking the police to tell his parents that he'd been a good policeman. And he then went into the bedroom and locked the bedroom door. Alone in his room, with the revolver in his hands, his head was spinning. Well, I think I think the night before he retired to his flat, and I think he he drank rather a lot. Um, so he was probably pretty drunk when he eventually committed suicide. Uh, according to the autopsy, um, he was he he'd been he drank a lot of alcohol. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. At 9 a.m. on the morning of the 15th of January, the chief inspector from the SIU, Mick Quinn, assembled a team. They headed to Homanton Station, but were delayed on the way due to car troubles. When they arrived late, at 10.40am, Division Superintendent Jack Trotman was waiting for them. But John was not. John wasn't in his office. He wasn't in the officer's mess or the canteen. He wasn't answering his phone. Minutes passed, the clock was ticking, and the SIU team didn't want to hang about. Well, when they, when they went to the police station to, to do the arrest, he hadn't turned up for work, so they then went to Homerton Police Quarters. John was a known drinker. I imagine they thought they'd find him in some kind of drunken, deep slumber. Well, here, they, 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 the, the SIU Brooks and Quinn went with the, uh, the superintendent to the flat. They got a they got a key from the the uh, uh, the manager, a skeleton key, but the door was locked from the inside. And uh, Trotman, who was the, the superintendent, who was the, the superior for, had to smash smash a hole through the door to get in. The curtains were drawn, and the flat was in darkness. But he wasn't asleep. And the bedroom door was locked from the inside. Prized that open with a crowbar, and there was John lying on his back with a gun lying next to his feet. They had broken down two doors. There was his body, the revolver lying next to him. So they had to break their way into the flat, and John, including the bedroom, and John was lying um, in the bedroom dead with a gun beside him. What the police discovered made it obvious to them it was a suicide. He'd shot himself five times in the stomach. He'd written a suicide note. Um, the, the flat, which was a, a police flat, well, I'll say police flat, a government, um, government flats in Homantin, um, was locked from the inside. Nori McKillop goes over and over what happened, what John must have been thinking. Uh, been told the night before. I mean, God, the, 
the poor guy must have gone, his mind must have gone through, uh, I can't imagine. So he was ruminating with us all night, tormenting, tormenting all night. Uh, till six o'clock in the morning, 10 past six, when he killed himself. And that was from the forensic evidence? That's from the, the note itself. It was he, he dated it and signed it at 0610 hours. 0610 hours. 15.1.80. The note read... Please, please tell my family that this was an accident and that I am a good police officer. In the suicide note, they'll tell my mother I was a good police officer. He was obviously, um, he was obviously a very, very proud person. And um, the, the macho image was just going to uh, make him a high suicide risk and my I'm not a psychiatrist but just my gut instinct says don't do that please the crime scene John's flat was a location that his fellow officers understood well they'd all lived in these flats at some point in their career Ian Grant describes the quarters they lived in exactly the same flats exactly the same one bedroom flats they had a bathroom kitchen uh, one bedroom in an uh, open area. So the police came to arrest him that morning. And actually, they didn't go to his apartment first of all, did they? They went actually to the station to meet him there. Yes. Um, but when he didn't show up, they went to his his police quarters. Um, and kept, they came through, and as you said, there were multiple doors um, bolted for them to, to break down to, to discover the body. Um what do you think were the failings that the police that then followed from the police investigation of that scene? The problem I think that occurred was that the police assumed immediately it was a suicide and therefore didn't take the normal steps that they would have taken even in those days at a scene of a crime uh, or at a scene of an incident with any suspicion at all. So the immediate assumption, and it would appear um, also the subsequent assumption, was that he had committed suicide. And you can understand why. Because of the fact of the nature of the case, there was a motive. Uh, the door had been locked from the inside. Um, both doors had been and he'd left a suicide note, and he'd shot himself with the revolver which he'd drawn out from the police armoury. So the police assumed it was a suicide. Was this a crime scene? I asked forensic scientist Dr Robert Green what the standard practice should be at a scene, any scene, where a body is discovered. Uh, but the first advice would be to, uh, to close down the scene, to, um, to try to recognise what, what you have, um, and to, uh, um, to, to to deal with it appropriately, to, to put a block on, to put your cordons around the scene. And it was a fairly easy crime scene to contain. It was indoors, in a government-owned building. There were multiple doors between the outside world and John's body. All they needed to do was shut one of them, limit the number of people who had access to the scene and start an investigation. But what happened was... 
there really wasn't much attempt to keep the room or both rooms free of people coming in, going out. So there was a, a huge number of people going in and going out uh, all the time. Um, some, um, the, the, the caretaker for the flats, the solicitor, the police themselves who found him, the subsequent police, the, the, the pathologist, um, the very large number of people, no control of the, over access to the whole place. According to the Commission of Inquiry, at John McLennan's flat that day, at least 29 people walked through the crime scene. As part of a bigger conversation I was having with Dr Robert Green on police intuition, we stumbled across a really similar scenario. You know, in, intuition, the, you know, the, the, the police officers um, all thinking the same thing, that this is uh, you know, clearly a, a, a suicide death. And that's exactly what happened in this situation. All the officers immediately thought it was suicide, And to illustrate why this intuition isn't always the best practice, Dr Robert Green tells me about another case he had worked on. Just to illustrate that that point then a little more, um, one of my last cases prior to joining the um, um, Forensic Science Service was a case which goes back um, around about 30, let's say 25, 30 years now. Um, And it was... Uh, a person who'd been been murdered, um, and he'd been murdered. He was an, an avid gun collector, um, and he'd been murdered for his collection of weapons. The guy who'd committed the crime wanted the uh, this collection of weapons uh, because he intended to go and uh, commit a series of robberies and so forth, which he, he actually started doing afterwards. Uh, and the, the initial crime scene um, was not very well handled, um, and I recall almost sitting at this table where I'm sitting now, taking a phone call one, one evening from uh, a lady who used to work with me, uh, saying, can you help? Can you come around? You, you're the nearest to this uh, particular crime scene geographically. Um, and she said, we, we've got 16 police officers um, walking in the scene. Um, I'm trying to tell them that this is clearly a, um, you know, a, a murder scene. Um, they have got it in their mind that this is a suicide um, the, the guy was, was bound with a, a dressing gown cord. Uh, he had head wounds. Um, there was blood by the door. Um, and in our mind, this was not a, uh, you know, it wasn't a, uh, a natural cause of death or it wasn't a suicide. And the reason they did form this, this opinion was because at the time of this, this offence occurring, was the time when the UK government um, were banning firearms. They were banning um, handguns in particular from uh, private ownership. And the group think that had occurred within the, this group of police officers, there were there were 16, I believe, uh, police officers who were actually milling around this, this scene. Um, and they'd got it in their mind that this was, uh, this guy could not live without his collection of firearms anymore and therefore had committed, was going to commit suicide. Um, that wasn't the case, um, and the 16 police officers actually destroyed quite a lot of the footwear mark evidence um, that we might have recovered from the front door down to the where the body was. Um, but interestingly, the, the, the whole case really um, hinged upon a cigarette end uh, that was found right in the attic, right in the garret room of this these premises, uh, which had, had the, the offender's DNA on it. I put this example to Detective Ian Grant. I spoke to a forensic officer, um, actually not about this case, but another case, and he was mentioning how actually one of the problems with 
thinking something's a suicide is that evidence gets lost. People automatically, more people maybe enter the crime scene than they should. There are lots of risks with assuming something is a suicide. Which I think is probably what happened here. Rather than it not being a suicide, things just got missed because they assumed it was maybe a little bit too early. Do you think that's fair to say? That, that it was too early to classify it as a suicide. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yes. It, it, again, in hindsight, yeah. Although it all pointed to that, but been other. You know, I've been to other deaths, and you're not sure, so you treat it as a suspicious one. And then you get the pathologist and everything to come out and then discuss it and the forensic, you know, if you're not sure. But again, when you, when you look back at it, a locked room, key in the door, suicide note, gone and got the weapon beforehand, the rationale is being interviewed for potential criminal offences, homosexuality. I mean, the fact is they're all there. Yet this assumption led to police failings that would throw up more questions than answers. Some of the basics were at best missed, at worst suspicious. So there was um, an absence of forensics. They uh, didn't dust uh, for fingerprints in the right places. They dusted in some places, but but not in others. And they um, messed up. Even the photography, um, they didn't take immediate photographs of everything. Um, and they then had photographs taken subsequently after things had been moved around. Ian Grant wasn't there that day, but his friends and colleagues were. Without wanting to criticise them, he gives his honest opinion of how the scene was handled. I can understand why the officers that attended the scene treated it as a suicide, but he asked the question, could more have been done? I say yes, um, because obviously some people at the scene would have known that John was going to be arrested. So I would have, again, benefit hindsight, treat it as a suspicious death. A suspicious death. Next time on Catching Worms. So he didn't have a gun. Mr. McLennan has drawn a revolver. He had shot himself four times around his heart and one time in his abdomen, so five shots from a revolver. It wasn't a suicide. No matter what the evidence was, they, 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 they screamed murder. That was a sufficient motive for someone to want to kill him. He probably wouldn't have pulled that trigger. He was possibly murdered. This has been a Create podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It helps others to find us. You can follow us on Instagram at CatchingWormsHK. With special thanks to Dr Robert Green, OBE, Forensic Specialist. Nigel Collette, 
author of A Death in Hong Kong, Detective Nori McKillop, and Detective Ian Grant. And thank you for listening. Catching Worms Zhuk Chong This term means to get yourself into trouble, causing unnecessary difficulties. It may seem like an odd phrase, but this slang is often used as an abbreviation of the full saying Zhuk Chong Yap Si Fat. That involves putting said worms up your rear end, which to anyone's imagination definitely spells trouble indeed. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.